So everybody, happy Easter, and uh, let's just continue enjoying God together. If you're new, you don't know me, my name's Philip, I'm one of the pastors here, and we teach from the Bible here each week at King's, and on Easter Sunday, we won't do anything different in that sense, and of course, we'll be focusing on the resurrection of Jesus, and if you're kind of new to church, and you've come along on Easter Sunday to give this whole thing a go, I think this is a good Sunday to come along, because you can look at the kind of absolute core and foundation of our faith, for which we've been celebrating, and before we get into the Bible, I just want to show you a couple of images. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been both kind of saddened and struck or moved by the, the fire of, of Notre Dame this last week. It was a really sad thing that happened. And at the same time, uh, there's been a number of images in the, uh, this is my joyful clicker, which is going funny. There's been a number of images in the uh, media which have kind of just taken my attention, especially being in this, in this passion week. And this is a photo that I think an American tourist took um, just an hour before the fire uh, started in, in Notre Dame. And uh, she didn't know this couple, but she was just on uh, a tourist in Paris, and she just suddenly saw this beautiful image of a father and his little girl, and, was like, and she was just like, all is right with the world. I've got to take a picture of this, here it is, there's joy and there's laughter and there's fun underneath this wonderful building built to the glory of God. Took a picture. What you didn't know, of course, is an hour later, the building was, was to start to burn down. And I'm sure you've seen lots of images like this. And it just kind of began to kind of live with me through this week, this Passion Week, that on the first image, if we go back, you have kind of in some senses uh, a picture of the beginning of the Bible, the story of the Bible, uh, all things being well, all is right with the world. I love that kind of idea of all is right with the world. And the story of the Bible begins with just that, human beings in right relationship with themselves and in right relationship with God. All is well, indeed, under the glory of God before which that building was built. And of course, the Bible tells us that sin came into the world and the destruction, the havoc, the carnage, that sin and shame and sickness and death has, uh, this is why I don't use these things because it, <laughs> it, uh, it spoils things. Um, there's the carnage, that sin is, is reeks of havoc and destruction and so forth. And of course, there was one more image that was taken, I'm sure many of you would have seen. <sighs> Uh, you leave it, Scott, I'll keep going with my thing. Uh, the image that was taken in the, in the media, which I've just, just moved me so much because the, the flames of the embers are still burning in this beautiful old building. It was built for the glory of God. The thing is virtually falling down. People are weeping and mourning, as you might have seen outside, and yet there's the cross shining, undimmed in many ways. The darkness has not overcome the light. The light has overcome the darkness. And of course, it reminds us that when, even at the worst of things, and the cross in some ways was the worst of things, God on a cross, sin and shame and death, it could not have been any worse, and yet the cross is still, and more than anything else, is a symbol of hope, not least because Friday is followed by Sunday, the cross is followed by the resurrection. That symbol there just spoke to me so much of the hope that we have, thanks to this Passion Week, this Easter week. And Jesus put it like this, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said that in John chapter 11, and that's the passage that we're going to land in this morning. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be in John chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing in one go, uh, but I am going to read it in kind of chunks, if you like. This is getting a little bit frustrating. <laughs> okay, thank you. I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. Uh, I want to say three things about this passage in a moment, just back one slide. I want to say three things. That the resurrection of the life, it means this. Jesus wants to tell us this morning, through this phrase, I am the resurrection of the life, <laughs> that this is a life lived for the glory of God, 
a life lived in the compassion of God and a life lived by the power of God. If you step into the family of God through Jesus, the resurrection and the life, you can expect a life lived for the glory of God in the compassion of God and by the power of God. Here we go, John chapter 11 verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus, we'll just stop there and we'll catch it up in a second. Jesus hears that his great friend Lazarus is ill. His great friend's uh, brother, Mary and Martha, is ill. They desperately call for him to come and come to the rescue. And they know that he is capable of all kinds of signs and wonders and healings. And Jesus responds to their urgent request with a couple of things. One, by saying, no, I'm going to stay here for a bit. And two, in verse four, by saying, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you read the Bible with any sense of honesty and integrity, there are some uncomfortable verses scattered throughout the Bible, and this is one of them. It's right up there with them, especially if you are living in illness, or you know somebody living in illness. Because Jesus is teaching that the ultimate purpose of all things is that the glory of God might be shown. Even a life-threatening illness, its ultimate purpose is that the glory of God might be shown. That is uncomfortable, like I say, especially if you know or know others in serious illness. Like, I'm unlikely to see the potential for the glory of God when I've got a cold. Never mind a life-threatening, soon-to-be life-taking illness that Lazarus has. But that's clear throughout the sweep of scripture. God is for God, ultimately. Like, hear me, God is for you. He is for you. The Easter story tells us that in no uncertain terms, that he is for you. But ultimately, God is for God. God is for his glory. Isaiah 43, verse seven says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created human beings to fill the earth with his glory. It's our ultimate reason for existence. And if we're honest, we don't always like that. Maybe it's just me, but there's part of me that would quite like the earth to be made for my glory. I would quite like praise and affirmation and honor and applause to come to my name for my glory. But at the same time, and maybe that's just you because you're looking very blankly at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But at the same time, as much as there's that desire for, for glory to come our way, is there not something in us, wherever our worldview might be this morning, that does yearn for, for a bigger glory than us? Like just an example about of the, of the Grand, imagine you go to the Grand Canyon, next slide please, and you make your way to the Grand Canyon and you're that person there just on the very edge and you get to the edge of the, of the, of the rock there, you look down this incredible canyon, this extraordinary piece of nature. Who, is anybody actually going to get to the edge of that canyon and look out across this incredible expanse and go, do you know what, I am amazing, I'm just amazing, I'm looking across this scenery and I'm just struck by my own glory. Like no one, no one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. We're going to look down that incredible canyon and just, at the very least, encounter something transcendent, something other, something beyond us, something of a greater glory than we could ever have. 
And the wonder of Jesus is that he meets us right in that contradiction that I think maybe we all live with from time to time. On the one hand, he meets us in our sinful, selfish desire to make the world about us, not about its creator. He calls it out as it is. Romans 1 talks about the exchange that we've made. We don't live for the glory of the creator. We live for the glory of ourselves and created things. Jesus meets us right there and calls it out. And he also meets us in this yearning that we have to encounter things of genuine glory, genuine magnitude, genuine beauty. Why is it that we stand and applaud an amazing performance here at the theatre? We're not applauding ourselves, we're applauding what we see here of excellence. Why do people hold their hands out at sporting matches because they're amazed by the glory of the, of the human specimens in front of them, what they're able to do? We do long for a glory over and above ourselves and Jesus meets that yearning and he shows us the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that when we see Jesus, we are beholding the glory of God. And if the glory of God is your primary reason for living, that gives you such a stable, steadfast platform upon which to stand. Because the Bible teaches, and this particular passage teaches, that even a life-threatening illness can still be used for the glory of God. Now, if, I, if my purpose for living is to be physically healthy and physically proficient and athletic and to be well thought of and good looking and handsome, you can nod if you like, because it's got some credible. To, if that's my reason for living, a life-threatening illness takes the rug out of my feet. If my reason for living is to be a success in the workplace, to be known as the one who's got it all together, and I'm made redundant and I can't find a job for a year, my reason for living has been taken out from under my feet. But if my reason for living is the glory of God, according to this passage, not even a life-threatening illness actually changes your reason for living. You stay stable, secure, buffeted, of course, weeping perhaps, but you don't lose the rug from under your feet. If you're not a Christian this morning, is the worldview upon which you stand, the reason you have for living, can it endure suffering? Does it still stand when the worst things of life come? In Christianity, Jesus' resurrection, or Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, tells us that suffering is not pointless and futile. We're not just accidental collections of atoms here by chance, time and space, accidentally evolved, the survival of the fittest. Because in that sense, really, suffering is meaningless and futile. Or it's even the way in which things have to be in order that the fittest survive. So just get used to it. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, tells us that our suffering can have a meaning we can actually come more and more into the conformity and the likeness of Jesus himself, the very glory of God. We can become a bit like the greatest human being that ever lived and begin to glorify him as a result. Are you living for the glory of God? Easter Sunday is a great day to ground ourselves in the reason for our faith and the reason that we have for living. Do you live for the glory of God? I was walking this morning up the river you probably know this little patch of, of river here has loads of benches with the, with the little plaques on the benches that people have put to memorialize their loved ones. Some really beautiful things that people have written in memory of their um, departed parents and grandparents and, and so on and so forth. But I just thought this morning, I, I wonder what people would write on there to memorialize me with just my little plaque, just a few words. Would they write, he lived for the glory of God? Would they write about you, she lived for the glory of God? 
through the best things, through the worst things, she lived that the glory of God might be known through all things. Number two, Jesus as the resurrection and the life tells us that we don't just live this resurrection life for the glory of God, we live it in the compassion of God. Let's keep reading back into the text. Verse 17, Jesus stayed where he was. He arrives late, at least as far as everybody else is concerned, in Bethany. And we pick up the story in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the question for us as well as Mary and Martha. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jump to verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, still outside the village where Lazarus is buried. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he open the eyes of the blind man and also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. I'll come back to the rest of the passage in a moment. Jesus as the resurrection of the life, resurrection of the life, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. Yes, it tells us that all things can be brought forth to the glory of God and for the glory of God. But what it's not saying is that as God is working things for his glory, it's not saying he's some kind of distant cosmic puppeteer who's just pulling the strings of humanity as he wishes, trying to get applause from the audience. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a God who as well as saying, I can use all things, even suffering for your good and my glory, at the same time God says, your suffering is not okay. It's both ends. He says it's not okay, and he involves himself in it. He enters into it. Verse 32, you've got Mary approaching Jesus, distraught at the death of her brother, angry with Jesus. And she says, in effect, what her sister Martha has just said, she basically says, where were you? You're late. What were you thinking, Jesus? If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Don't you care? Have you ever spoken to Jesus like that? What's Jesus' response? How dare you speak to me like that? (laughs) Jesus is anything but harsh, anything but cold. 
didn't say, now, 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 all things work for the glory of those who love me. Pipe down. Just look at this man. Look at this God, how he responds. He weeps. Like, who's read that verse before? Compianda. Who's read that verse before? Most of us. Please don't miss that verse. God weeps. It's just mind-boggling. God weeps. He's appalled, appalled by the effects of the fall. He knows the world as it should be. Fathers and daughters playing underneath the glory of God for the glory of God. And he's appalled at what's happened to this precious, precious world and this precious humanity that he created for his glory ultimately. I'm not sure that we fully appreciate what John was really getting at. Our English translation doesn't help us really to understand what John was really saying when he describes Jesus as greatly troubled and deeply moved. There's a well-known American Bible scholar called D.A. Carson who writes this about this phrase, deeply moved. He says, in extra-biblical Greek, it can refer to the snorting of horses. As applied to human beings, it invariably suggests intense anger, outrage, fierce emotional indignation. Is that how you think of Jesus? Tim Keller, as ever, says it well. He says, verse 38 would best be translated like this. Bellowing with anger, Jesus approached the tomb. That's the best translation for that verse. Bellowing with anger, Jesus approached the tomb. Meek and mild? Absolutely. Fierce and indignant and full of compassion and emotion. God calls you to live for his glory. Sometimes that costs. In fact, it will cost if you're doing it right. But he's not distant. He's not just observing us. He's not this uh, cosmic puppeteer. He's right there in it with us. Weeping in grief at what's happened to our world. And at the same time, bellowing with righteous indignation. Some of us always think of anger as being wrong and sinful. It's not. Righteous anger is expressed towards that which is wrong. And Jesus knows that it's wrong that death has entered the world. We know it's wrong. That's why we all feel it, regardless of any, whatever our worldview is. We feel instinctively when it happens, it should not be. And Jesus says, you're right, it should not be. And he puts it right. The resurrection and the life means that we're called to a life lived in the good of that and that resurrection life means we live for the glory of God and it's a life lived in and with the compassion of God. And thirdly, it's a life lived by the power of God because the story hasn't ended yet. Verse 39, back into John 11. Just as Jesus approaches the tomb, bellowing with anger, tears in his eyes, Jesus said, verse 39, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, that for which you were made? That was my bit, not his. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you, sorry, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, 
I love this, this is insight into, the, into God talking. <laughs> Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you would hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. It's God the Son talking to God the Father, just perfect ease, mutual love and affection. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Imagine what that scene must have been like. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The resurrection of Lazarus tells us also that there is power at work. The natural world is not all there is. Death is not the end. Power of heaven has come to earth. Heaven has entered earth. It's begun to overlap. That's why Jesus kept saying the kingdom of heaven is here and this is what it's like. And then he would do various signs and wonders to demonstrate it. He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is a cloud somewhere away with harps and people singing and one day if you live a good life you'll go there and do some singing forever. The kingdom of heaven is here and this is what it's like resurrection life most profoundly. Jesus had complete authority. Some of you think authority is by definition a suspicious thing. Often it gets used poorly. Jesus had all authority and look how he used it to bless and to heal and to raise. He had all authority and power over sickness and death and then he empowers us who are united to him with the same power that raised him from the dead, he says, that's now in you. Do you believe that? <laughs> the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, by which he operated in total authority and power, is given to all those who would believe in him and follow him. A few years ago, um, someone phoned the church office, uh, and it turned out to be a, a lady who was not unlike Mary and Martha, a bit older, I think, but, but full of grief. And she explained to me uh, that her son had died. He was 37, left behind two, two children and a partner. And she called and she said, I, I'm not sure what to do. I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, my church had told me really just to kind of leave this and to uh, begin my, the grieving process. But I'm reading the Bible and it says that all authority, uh, Matthew 10, 8, all authority is given by Jesus to follow the Jesus to heal the sick and raise the dead. She said, do you believe that as well? Yes, I th- yeah, I, I do. Yes. She said, well, would you come and pray for my son to be raised from the dead? Sorry? (laughs) I said, yeah, I guess I will, because that's what it says here. That's the stuff. So so I called a friend of mine. You don't do this sort of thing on your own. Some of you know him, Akhtar, who pastors everyday church over there, because I know he's full of faith for these kinds of things. And I said, do you want to come and pray for someone to be raised from the dead? He didn't take as long to think about it as me. He said, yep, where shall, I, where shall I meet you? So we went to a funeral parlor, I think it's called, in Worcester Park. And met this lady in the, in, the, uh, in the doorway. Mary and Martha seemed to some degree. She wasn't angry, but she was full of grief and tears. Told us a little bit about our son. And then we were ushered into this small, dark room in which there was a coffin. And in said coffin, there was a dead man. who was ice cold to the touch, as you can imagine. So I was thinking, right, Matthew 10, 8 says, Jesus said, 
All authority and power is given to you. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. So we prayed. <laughs> and we prayed. Oh my goodness, we prayed. And we prayed some more. And there were various moments where faith was rising. I can remember it now. I actually had coffee with Akhtar last week and we were reminiscing and we were like, there were certain moments where I was convinced and Akhtar was convinced this guy is going to get up. And he didn't. Stayed dead. And eventually we left and went outside and I remember sitting in the rain in Worcester Park by the road with this lady just talking and praying and weeping and trying to help ourselves, let alone her, to understand the place in which we live, the, the now but the not yet, that the authority is here, the opportunities are there, and yet we also know that Jesus promised us trouble and suffering. And then we came home. What do you do with that story? What do I do with that story? It's always lived with me. You won't be surprised to know. I haven't I mean, I've told it before for various reasons, but now seems an appropriate time to tell it. See, it's both and. That's the thing. It's both and. The Christian life is so often both and. For those of us who are black and white thinkers, it's taken a long time to work it out. It's often both and. Jesus has given us all authority. But more than performing remarkable things in his name, more than that, he is drawing us into a place of such intimacy with the... Did you see the way that Jesus prayed to the Father in in, in in the passage? There's such intimacy at play there. More than wanting us to do the things that Jesus did, he's wanting us to enjoy the intimacy that he had. He will release us more and more to do the things that he did as we step out in faith and obedience and take risks. But he wants to teach us at the same time. And he taught me a bit, and I'm reflecting on it now. He's like, because he taught me, do you really feel for this woman? Do you really experience the love that I have for her? This is not coming out as clearly as I meant it to, but it wasn't like God didn't do that miracle because I didn't love the woman enough. That's not what I'm saying. But the little bit as I learn as we step out into these things, what God is ultimately wanting to do is to draw us to himself. And as we learn to be as intimate with the Father as Jesus was, we start to do the things that Jesus did. As we learn to pray to the Father like Jesus did, we start to do the things that Jesus did. As we learn to trust the Father, like Jesus did, we start to do the things that Jesus did. As we learn to live for the glory of the Father, as Jesus did, we start to live, do the things that Jesus did. I'm going to show you a short video now, which will encourage us that it is not just not yet, it's also now. So this is a video taken from New Day. If we could roll it in a moment, uh, Scott and Shay, and it's, some of you know New Day, it's a fantastic youth festival that loads of our kids and kids in our churches uh, go to. And uh, this guy in the Czech shirt is uh, called Adrian Holloway. Some of you will know him. He's a kind of evangelist, Christian apologist, as it were, in our network of churches. And every year at this Christian youth festival, he'll pray for teenagers who are sick and ill and injured and see some of them remarkably healed. But he waits for a year so that medical authenticity and authorization can, have its, can take its course. And the following year, he invites them onto the stage and says, right, what did God do for you? And here's one example. Hi, what's your name? Henry. And Henry, tell us what was, in fact, you had more than one problem when you came to New Day last summer, but tell us what was the problem that you had? Um, I had ME, what I got from glandular fever, what meant I couldn't talk for six months leading up to New Day, what meant I was whispering, and I also had a broken collarbone. Um, falling off a bench well, the week before New Day, so. Okay, so you, you contracted glandular fever, and presumably it was your throat or one of the glands that was affected. You say you weren't able to talk, you were whispering for six months? That's, I was physically whispering, nobody could hear me, and 
for me, I'm quite a loud person, quite talkative, and that was really hard. Six months where I've been able to talk at all. Okay, so you also had this condition that the tiredness, uh, the post-viral fatigue, or the ME, and you were telling me that you would only be going into school for maybe one hour a day? Yeah, one or two hours a day, and then I'd be going home to sleep for the rest of the day. And I used to be quite a sporty person, and it's really just put me down to be sleeping all the time. So. so you've gone from a normal life, all of a sudden you can't talk, you can only go to school for one hour a day, you've damaged your shoulder, but you came here. And tell us what happened. Uh, all my friends were stood around praying for me, and I heard a voice come over me and say, Henry, look up and talk. And I thought, that's just me thinking about that. So I waited a bit longer, and I heard the voice again saying, look up and talk. So I looked up and one of my friends said, I can talk, and my voice was totally normal. I'm back to talking. Fantastic. And you, you've been completely healed? Yeah. And then I looked up at one of my youth leaders, and she said to me, um, what about your arm? Because I was in a sling. And I went, no, that's broken. It's not going to be able to be moved. And they said, try it. Get it out of the sling. And I pulled it out of the sling, and I had full movement again. No pain, no nothing. And you went back to see the paediatrician? Tell us what happened. You were having appointments with the paediatrician, and you went back, didn't you? Yeah, I was having appointments every weekly with the paediatrician. I went back maybe a week after New Day and explained what had happened. I'd come to New Day and I'd been healed and she went, well, looking at this, I have no other explanation. There's no explanation for this. Fantastic. Isn't that an amazing story? Thank you so much, Henry. Well done. Thanks, guys. He's now and not yet. <laughs> I would like my story to be his story, but that's all right. We just need to step into intimacy with the Father. That means time with him. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just walk around waving a wand. Could have done, because he was God. He had all power and authority, but actually he operated out of prayer, out of being filled with the Spirit, out of intimacy with the Father, out of dependency, out in this case of deep compassion and brokenheartedness for the havoc that sin and death and sickness wreaked. And he calls us to do the same. He calls us to do the same. So at the end, I think as we worship, we should be looking to pray for those who are sick and ill. So who'd like to join me in praying for anybody that's sick and ill? Because not just me doing it. Great, there you go, 10 hands. So, if you're feeling, if you are sick, or you are ill, or you are injured this morning, it's 10 people. Mike, would you hand up then? Because it should be, because you led us so well the other day in the encounter evening. This is what's prompted me by just saying, let's get on with this. Let's do this. So we'll pray for those who are sick and injured, and we'll see what God does. So Lazarus' resurrection is good news. It's good news. It tells us that the glory of God has broken out and it enables us to live for that ultimate purpose. It tells us that our suffering is not futile, but it's filled with meaning and potential. So Resurrection of Lazarus tells us that God is deeply compassionate and ultimately utterly committed to the healing of humanity and creation. And we, you, are his recipients, and are his ambassadors and recipients of his power as befits an ambassador of the king. But, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, as I am as inspired as I am by Jesus' raising of Lazarus, it doesn't necessarily actually change me. Like, 
again, this might just be me, but I am still more likely, probably, to live for my own glory than to live for God's. Just in myself, in the natural, if you like. I'm more likely to cringe and rail at my own suffering than I am to embrace it for the good that God can do and the glory that it can bring him. I'm more likely to avoid other people's suffering than I am to head towards it, weeping in compassion and raging in righteous indignation. When I see sickness, my faith is more likely to wilt than it is to rise. So Jesus' raising of Lazarus is only really good news because Jesus also raised Jesus. That's why it's really good news. Otherwise, it's an inspiring thing that we can look upon, but we can never hope to achieve or to follow or to live up to. The good news of Lazarus' resurrection is that Jesus didn't just raise Lazarus, he raised Jesus. Yes, New Testament teaches that the Father and the Spirit were at work raising Jesus from the dead, but the mystery of the Trinity also tells us that Jesus was raising himself from the dead. In fact, he predicted it the previous chapter in this book of John. John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is why it's good news. Jesus didn't only weep and rage at the death of others, he submitted to his own death. He didn't only call Lazarus from the tomb, he entered the tomb himself. He didn't simply glorify God through Lazarus' resurrection, God glorified him through his resurrection. He didn't only call one person to resurrection life, he called every person to resurrection life. That's what faith in this remarkable man, God, Jesus Christ, does. It unites you to him. It unites you to his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So when we, he dies, we die with him. We're buried with him. And lots of us think of all oh, that's all the bad things I've done and forgotten about. Absolutely, as far as the east is from the west. Done, forgiven. But it doesn't end there. All our shame for that which we have done, that which has been done to us, is buried in that tomb. All our own selfishness, all the selfishness of others and the hurt that's caused us, all the fear that we lived with, is dies with Jesus, is crucified with Jesus, and is buried with Jesus in a tomb with a stone across it. My desire... My desire to live for myself and not for my loving, glorious creator is buried with Jesus. I sometimes pick it up again and put it on again, but what the, the status has changed. My proclivity to reverse the right order of things, created beings living for the glory of the creator, my proclivity to keep on reversing that and making it about me or other things, even good things, that actually isn't just sort of marginally put to one side. It's crucified and buried with Jesus. My fear of what others will think of me is buried with Jesus. I just put it back on again sometimes. It's like those stinking, smelly, death rags that Lazarus is wearing, that Jesus was wearing. It's all died with him. It was all buried with him. He left it behind, so why don't you? And I am raised to life with Jesus, a life lived for his glory, a life where suffering has meaning and a hope and an end, a life advancing the kingdom of heaven on earth for the healing and transformation of people's lives and God's glory. Knowing that one day, that kingdom will be established fully 
and the final vestiges of sickness and death and sin will be kicked into touch and finished. No Mary will ever weep again. Let me just finish, if I may, Scott, with those last, with those images again, just because I found them helpful. I hope they help you. The way the world should be. Humanity playing under the glory of God, which is what that building was built for. Things as they should be. Laughter, joy, right human relationships that do human good and bring glory to God. Next image, please. we've sabotaged much of that. We've wreaked havoc upon the creation itself and upon each other. And we're still living in that space in many ways. We're still living in a world that is groaning with the effects of our desire to make the world about us and to hurt each other. But Passion Week, Easter Week, The cross tells us that we have a hope and the cross comes from the embers of death and destruction and it stands shining and it will not be overcome by any darkness. And it was followed by a resurrection. It speaks of life and of hope and of last, back to that same image again, please, Scott. It speaks of a plan to restore the world as it should be. And that's begun That's why we saw that young man healed. Because the beginning of heaven on earth, the world as it should be, no sickness anymore, has broken out. I don't understand why it didn't break out when I prayed for that person to be raised from the dead. That's okay, I leave it with God. And step into his purposes and his joy and his intimacy. He's begun the restoration of this world. He will make all things right and good. And he started that process now. And he's commissioned you if you're a believer in Christ, to begin to remake this world as it should be, where we'll one day live forever, not in a cloud somewhere with a silly harp, laughing, dancing. Hello, I wonder whether you, the band, could come and join me. And we're going to worship together, and we'll see how to respond. If God's speaking to you for us, come and share that. I want to be able to pray for people for all kinds of things in a moment. But above all, on Easter Sunday, let's stand and let's begin to worship this incredible risen Savior that we have. Father, we come to you today. We thank you so much on Easter Sunday for giving us Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible life that you lived, where you wielded authority for the good of people, for their service where you stepped right into the heart of the human condition, the dreams and hopes that we have and the the fear and selfishness that we also have. You stepped right into it and you wept and you grieved and you raged in righteous indignation against all that was not as it should be and you put it right by taking it all upon yourself, all upon yourself and leaving it buried in that tomb and striding out in resurrection life to unite anyone who would believe in you, to live a life for your glory, knowing your love and compassion with us every day, operating in your power for the glory of your name. Teach us what that means, we pray. May we worship you, risen Jesus. May we operate in your power. Amen.